0: Hello. This is the Fiction Nonfiction podcast from Literary Hub, where we believe that every issue in your social media feed or on the evening news has already been tackled somewhere in literature. I'm Whitney
1: Terrell, author of the novel *The Good Lieutenant*, and I'm Vivi Ganeshanathan, also known as Sugi, author of the novel *Brotherless Night*. And this episode is about Donald Trump. Not again! <laughs> again. Not again! Again! No! 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 no. We have Why? To. We have to um i you know with trump in the 2024 presidential election i know it feels like we're stuck in the third iteration of the time loop in groundhog day it's just like knowing or fearing how everything is going to play out having seen it once before and trying fucking desperately to change the script
0: i'm in the version of the one where where he decides to just get drunk all the time (laughs) (laughs) with bill Murray's just hammered driving cars around um all right Uh, Right now, it does seem like we are having the same conversations that we did in 2016, along with a horrible feeling of dread, because we know what happened. We don't know how to prevent what happens. It feels like it's happening again over and over, you know, and as conversations about Trump and the election are reemerging, you know, there's this sort of elliptical quality to time. Um, So this is the Time, Trump
1: and Trauma episode. I would like to note that Whitney always gives me shit for being the pessimistic one of us, and he came up with this. Let that, and did. he came up with that title as well. But fortunately, one of the most hopeful storytellers I know, Matt Bell, is here to talk to us about this. Matt is the author most recently of the novel Appleseed, a New York Times notable book, and Refuse to be Done, a craft book about novel writing, rewriting, and revision. He's the author of the novels Scrapper and In the House Upon the Dirt Between the Lake and the Woods, the short story collection A Tree or a Person or a Wall, a non-fiction book about the classic video game, Baldur's Gate 2, and several other titles. In the House Upon the Dirt Between the Lake and the Woods was a finalist for the Young Lions Fiction Award and an Indies Choice Adult Book of the Year honor recipient, and won the Paula Anderson Book Award, among other honors. He teaches creative writing at Arizona State University. Matt, welcome to the show.
2: Thanks so much for having me. It's a pleasure to be here.
1: So we are um, taping this on May 20th, and the GOP will nominate a presidential candidate a year and change from now. God, it just speaks to like this episode theme that I'm already traumatizing yeah. this. <laughs> and so far, Trump is in the lead, ahead of Florida Governor Ron DeSantis, and he's leading by like 36%. So the odds of a Trump-Biden rematch next year seem high. My blood pressure is like going up. And some current polling shows them virtually tied in a general election. So I can't think of any rematches like this in my lifetime, um, presidential election rematch. Of course, the story isn't exactly the same. They flipped roles and Biden is the incumbent while Trump is the challenger. And Trump was just found liable for sexual abuse and defamation of Eugene Carroll. An incumbent president ousted from the White House hasn't returned to the office since Grover Cleveland, who was our 22nd and 24th president. How are you feeling about our weird, familiar sequel?
2: Yeah, I mean, awful, obviously. <laughs> but um, you know, it's—I uh, was thinking about this earlier today, and I, you know, I listen uh, pretty religiously to like Pod Save America. You know, like two times a week, and you know, one of the places I get my political news. And I was thinking as they were discussing, you know, something about Trump's run for president the other day, that I've kind of been listening to the same episode of it for eight years. Right. <laughs> you know, like, like <laughs> the exact same episode of Pod Save America has been on since 2016, um, which is is grueling. Uh, and it is sort of weird to be in it again. Um, I'm hoping like most sequels, like uh, Trump's performance will just keep getting worse. but uh, But it is a scary time, right? That sort of even match between him and Biden seems alarming, um, but not terribly surprising, but alarming anyway.
0: The other thing that messes with the way that we perceive time, and we're going to talk about the way that works in literature as well, but political time, you know, is that is when people are basically blowing by all norms, you know, I mean, that's the thing that that has been repeated with Trump over and over again, you know, the, the Muslim ban that was, you know, is seems so familiar, but that happened at the beginning of his first term, you know, the separation of migrant families. Um, he's already saying like in that recent CNN town hall that, uh, uh, you know, like, and the New York times has been reporting on this as well, that he would default on the debt. He would, uh, he would stop supporting Ukraine. He would, you know, destroy the federal civil service service. He would pardon people connected to the January 6th, all, all the same, you know, a version of all the same crazy crap that he did the first time around, you know, um, how do we, deal with this sense that we're not moving forward in time you know i mean what what happens to people when that when that when that occurs to them
2: I was trying to think, um, you know, about similarities and differences. as I was getting ready for this conversation, and you know, some things like I'm going to destroy the the federal civil service. You know, I don't know if you remember at the beginning of his his first presidency, his only presidency, hopefully, um, that uh, there were like 2,500 like unfilled federal jobs for a while. He just like wasn't putting people in positions, and it felt like uh, like it was a failure of competency at first, like he didn't know how to do it, and then you realize like maybe that's actually like the plan. If you just don't fill regulatory roles, you just don't put people in position to run things and then the government just doesn't work, which is maybe the goal of a lot of the Republican Party, not just Trump. Um, and I was like, so that feels like a repeat. That promise is like we've, we've lived in that version of the federal government once and it, we wouldn't want to do it again. But, you know, I think we know that. I was thinking about what was different and you know, I mean, I don't know how this will work out electorally, but, you know, certainly after 2020 and the, you know, expansion of sort of Black Lives Matters, I think expanded a lot of sort of um, activist sort of feeling and and capacity in the U.S. that we have this time that we did not have last time in the same way. That seems true. Um, I think the the primary that Biden won moved the Democratic Party to the left really firmly in a way that, you know, we actually got a lot of progressive sort of things through. I think that. That level of where we expect sort of um, the, the 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 left to be has expanded in capacity, and and we're seeing some of the results of those things. I'm hoping that those things are bulwarks against this sort of repeat of of Trumpism, but uh, but we'll see. But I I think there's some I can take a little optimism there, at least you know that the capacity for resistance is higher <laughs> than it was in 2016. I think is, is maybe but maybe what I'm trying to say. <laughs>
1: I think that's a really helpful reminder. Um, I can feel my blood. Pressure good, going good. Because yeah. that feels to me so that feels to me so profoundly yeah. true. Um, as someone who lives yeah. in Minneapolis, to kind of see people activating, yeah, kind of like people reaching reaching for things that they hadn't tried before, or going moving into spaces where they weren't comfortable because they're doing it for things that are important. Um, I keep thinking so about the Dark yeah, Tower I, tril- uh, uh, <laughs> se- sequence of books
0: oh, by yeah, oh, Stephen yeah. King. Love those books. Yeah. So they're. <laughs> So, okay, so you're familiar with them. Like, I just keep thinking about there's that image of like the Red King gets all these telekinetic people together to like s- dismantle the beams that are connecting all the different universes right. together, and they're slowly eroding reality oh, away yeah. and then and like in certain worlds there are places called Thinies where like the reality has begun to erode away and it makes weird noises and you don't want to go near it and that's what i feel like the, the trump is doing like he's slowly trying he's got a bunch of people who are slowly like eating away at the norms of american society like not f- re the civil service pretending that the election was a lot you know what wasn't wasn't accurate you know all that stuff is like you just feel that eating away and that's what i feel like is happening
2: yeah, I, mean, I don't disagree with that. You know, I, I'm uh, for whatever reason right now listening to John Krakauer's book about Pat Tillman, um, partly because that's a, you know, like an Arizona story I don't know very well as, as someone who now lives here. And uh, so a lot of that is like post 9-11 politics, post 9-11 geopolitics. And uh, so much of that is obviously like was terrible, and was handled really badly. And it feels Quaint in some ways compared to like our current political discussions, right? Like a uh, George W. Bush is no one wants to repeat a George W. Bush either, right? But it like it's sort of um, amazing how I, nostalgic even that version of like Republican politics seems. Seems impossible to have a, a Republican presidential candidate that would look anything like that now, other than just general incompetency, which they still are doing quite well with. Um, but it's yeah, it's it does feel that erosion is a hard thing to. To deal with and to push back against, right? It is hard to sort of feel how that's affected you because I, I absolutely feel that too. Um, yeah,
1: I feel like you're already um, helping by, um, like I think you know. Even as I was thinking about as I was thinking about this, I'm my brain has sort of shrunk to, oh, there's 2016, there's 2020, and right. there's 2014. <laughs> I'm like, no wait, there's a before that, right? Like, um, like W makes Trump possible. Yeah. Um, oh, I have a whole theory on that. Right? Like, um, we, we, I mean. <laughs> But it's because he was such a
0: bad president, you know, and, and then created this war that so many of his voters supported and then sent their children to fight and die in. And then there was no resolution for it. And so the anger and humiliation of supporting a thing that was a disaster that you can't admit is a disaster. It's very, it, you know, it makes people crazy, you know, and, and I think Trump is a direct outgrowth of that.
2: Yeah, I think that seems absolutely correct to me. Um, the uh, I just re- read uh, John Cotter's book, Losing Music, that just came out, and there's a little. There's a, yeah, it's so, so good, beautiful. and there's a little aside in it where he talks about Fox News being uh, the loudest channel on on cable television. It's just louder than everything else. And of course, it's angry. And like, if you're like a Fox News viewer, you are just subjected to people like screaming the whole time and and interfacing with these like actual real political angers that exist that are are based on real things that happen to people and, and real things that people are dealing with. Um, but that when you're on, the only people who are talking back to you about it are like, Giving you just like anger and and um, fear toward other people. Uh, of course, you're going to internalize that at that kind of rate. Um, and I think Trump's um, uh, thing that he did really well and continues to do well is the like I'm the only person who can help you which is actually like a, a pretty attractive narrative to people, as opposed to if we all work together and do this as a community, we can really slowly make progress on these things over time, you know, which uh, is, is I get why that's not as compelling of a thing when you're scared and angry as um, I'm the person and I'll fix it. And I'll take care of all your enemies and I'm going to fight for you. Um, I, I get why those narratives compete in, in ways that are not always to our benefit.
1: Yeah, I mean, I think so. A lot of what we're talking about are also, I mean, even what you're describing about Fox and that volume, like that's a kind of repetition, right? It doesn't progress. Right. Um, so at the risk of workshopping our lives and the entire country, I want to talk about the looping narrative of these elections um, and our political discourse in relation to your craft book refused to be done. Because at one point in the book, you introduce the idea of repeating the same type of event and altering certain elements so that laid against each other, the scenes kind of gain new resonance and the characters and the event itself are kind of revising themselves within the larger arc. So at first, what seems to be repetition ends up being progression. And I wonder if you could read that part of the book for us.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Um, There's a a little bit that's carrying on from a scene before our part before this that's about uh, an invented character named Juliet, who's like encountering uh, this fear of uh, high diving. So sort of reference that. But I think it's sort of clear um, in this. So, uh, yeah, I'll just read. Another way to generate more dynamic progress in your exploratory drafts, like a first draft of a novel, is to transform a single scene you've written into a series of scenes, returning to the same setting or repeating the same type of event multiple times. In the previous section, We meet, we met Juliet and her fear of high diving. A quick way to build the story would write the first scene where Juliet balks and doesn't dive, which establishes the status quo of the story. And then to come back after a series of events has occurred, perhaps Juliet has set out to conquer her fears through increasingly outlandish bravery building exercises, only to find out that despite Juliet's feeling that she's grown, she hasn't grown enough. Juliet, newly brave in so many other settings, still fails to dive. More events occur. Juliet has changed even more powerfully until we get a third scene in the high dive. This time, Juliet bravely jumps, much to the surprise of all the onlookers so used to laughing at her failure. Another example. In the movie Gattaca, it's one of my favorite movies, Ethan Hawke plays Vincent, an invalid destined to a life of manual labor in a world where genetic selection produces a class of exceptional people who get the best jobs. Vincent's brother, Anton, is one of the Valids, and from a young age, Ethan is clearly no match for Anton physically, something we learn from a scene of the two brothers swimming out into the ocean depths, playing a game of chicken to see who will turn back first. As teenagers, Vincent flinches and turns back. Another time, we see Anton save Vincent from drowning. At the movie's end, after adult Vincent has successfully impersonated a ballad long enough to be selected as an astronaut, he and his brother swim one more time, going farther than ever ever before. This time, it's Vincent who wins their game, which ends with his saving Anton's life, an inversion of their last swim as teenagers. The two scenes are essentially the same scene, repeated decades apart from each other, but conditions have changed, including who plays which part, winner and loser, drowner and rescuer, and so the emotional resonance changes too. What was once a demonstration of Vincent's inferiority becomes proof of his resilience and drive and has earned equality with his genetic betters, in quotes, obviously. As readers, we find this kind of progression incredibly satisfying. As writers, we discover its possibilities the same way we discover so much else, by looking back at what we've made in order to determine what we have yet to make.
0: All right. Can we play this out with the Trump administration. So, so the thing like, okay, he starts, he comes down the golden elevator. Everyone underestimates him. No one wants to attack him on in the, in the Republican primary. And therefore, because there's a lot of candidates, he ends up being able to win because nobody really goes after him. He shames certain people and makes fun of them and they, they don't re- react. He loses you know, in, in, in the Biden. So that's a progression. I mean, what I like about the examples you gave is that there's progression and change, right? But what I'm yeah, worried yeah, about yeah. now is like, here he is again, large field uh, ahead. How does that turn out differently? I mean, in one version of my mind, I felt like Trump would never be elected again, that this was going to be the comedic version of his run, like he would be a joke. But I, after that town hall meeting, I don't know that I believe that. And so how do you view this last iteration as being different?
2: Yeah, well, do we agree it's different? This is the hard part, right? Um, Can it be different? And I don't different? know the answer exactly. Can it be different? Yeah. I I do think he's less surprising in ways that... I mean, I feel like I probably underestimated his chance of winning in 2016 almost to the last minute. You know, I think that last... Jim Comey press conference about Hillary's emails like five days before the election was like my oh shit moment. And that was like at the end. Right. And I've been feeling oh shit for eight years now. Um, So I think, you know, like we're awake in a different way. Um, I do think, you know, the the people who really need to learn from the the cycle feels less on the left and more on the right. It's kind of amazing to watch. Desantis and the other people who are running who are not going to be president um, fail to have learned from watching Jeb Bush and Marco Rubio and all these people essentially have their their president ambitions quashed forever. Marco Rubio is never going to be president, right? It doesn't matter how much time passes. Uh, he just <laughs> made them ridiculous in a way that was, uh, I mean, unreal, right? And and it's hard to, it's hard to. Imagine why DeSantis is, isn't learning from that, you know? I mean, there's lots of reasons probably. I don't think he's a very good candidate either, but um, I don't know. I mean, know. how can it's you run a, against
0: them. Trump and not be able to say that he lost the election? His whole argument is like, I'm, I'm a winner, but he won't say that Trump lost the election. Somebody's going to have to do that on the Republican side. I can't believe yeah. that they're not doing it.
2: You can't run to the right of him. His, his town hall positions were like fascist. They're as right as they can go, right? You can't be like, well, I'm, I'm Trump, but I'm a little more electable. I'm actually more conservative. Like, I don't know that there's a space there. Um, but yeah, the inability to go after him for electability, which seems like Desantis's strength, but like he won floor, his reelection by so much. Trump has not won any elections in like a popular vote way, right? You know, and his, as people he endorses have lost. It, but that feels like an inability on the right to learn. I'm hoping on the left, we we have sort of learned something from some of those things. Um, maybe this goes back to that sort of political awakening that I feel in the Trump era on the left as well. You know, living in Arizona, which is a, a deeply purple state, but, um, you know, we've won three senatorial elections in a row. Uh, Trump lost to Biden here by, you know, 11,000 votes, but that's how it goes in our system. Um, we elected a Democratic governor and everybody, all the state level races were won by Democrats this time, except for uh, attorney general, I believe. Um, Actually, like that wasn't possible eight years in Arizona. That's a place where you can see that kind of progress happening. And it does have to do with people um, getting involved that weren't involved before changing demographics, of course, but also I think learning some of those lessons. Um, But again, it's the repeat is on the right. Like they, if they would not run crazy people, we would have trouble beating them in Arizona. You know, like uh, Blake Masters and uh, Martha McSally are, are ideal candidates for our purposes, you know, but um, but they're not going to do that forever either. When they learn from that, we'll be in more trouble than we are. Which is not helpful. Yeah, <laughs> that's the pressure going back up. When Trump stops selecting who runs for senator in Arizona, we will have more trouble than we're having now.
1: Well, my- yeah, I guess like... Go ahead, Sue, maybe, yeah, I've been talking Sorry, about like maybe... I'm just like thinking, so if we're expecting the right to learn I like this idea <laughs> um, working with it um, yeah. like what would smart Ron DeSantis my brain yeah. has stretched really far now yeah, yeah, um, yeah. what would he do like would he yeah. so he would say like Trump did not win the election I can win the election um, I am an old-school Republican but like right the the presumption is that those ideas don't pull well anymore like wouldn't would not actually get him the White House like what would actually be a way that like at this point, I don't see I don't see a narrative where Ron DeSantis could possibly win. And even if I rewound like a year, I don't know that I can make one up where he could have done something different. But do you think that he could do you think he could have?
2: I don't know. I think I mean, I do think he lives. He's fighting someone who punches constantly and he has to punch if he wants to play. You know, that sort of I mean, Trump got a got a uh not convicted because a civil case but you know lost at a jury of his peers in a sexual assault case a week ago and DeSantis was like well I think the New York Attorney General is a bad person like that's that's not what you do in your yeah. political appointments get convicted of crimes you know like you have to go after them and that sort of inability to do it they're in a real trap that is the durable repeating thing for them where Trump's floor is really strong and in a in a primary that's hard to beat you know I mean it, they have a primary versus general election problem of their own making since the Tea Party days you know Um, that's their long story that they're dealing with that's different than than the left's sort of primary issues, yeah.
0: Okay, we're going to take a short break here, and we'll be right back. I have this theory, Sugi, I I don't know if you're going to hate this idea, but um, I think that... Tune
1: tune into YouTube to find out. (laughs) (laughs)
0: <laughs> I keep thinking back to when the Democrat, now look, I agreed with the policies of the left wing of the Democratic Party when I was, you know, like I was born in 67. So I wasn't really alive for this stuff. But in the in the 68 and 72 presidential elections, you know, this is during the uh, Vietnam War. There is an extreme left that is very anti-war. People are burning draft cards. There's the weathermen. There are You know, sort of. There are there are so there are insurrections. There are some violence on the left that that is like trying to actually overthrow the government for good reasons. I'm opposed to the war as well, right? But you have anti-war candidates who were uh, like McGovern, who ran in '72, who were responsive to that wing of the of the Democratic Party, and just got their asses handed to them. I mean, McGovern won like his home state, and that was it. And that's the state that Sugi lives in now. And I, I'm hoping that there will become a moment when there actually will just be... I mean, the Republicans lost, didn't do nearly as well in the 2020 election. They did poorly in 2018. Um, I want there to be... There's one version of this is where they just have a McGovern election, where uh, a, a Democratic presidential candidate wins, you know, what would be, I don't know, 45 states or something like that, you know. I don't know if that's possible.
2: I don't know if it's possible either, but I'd love to see it. You know, it feels like... Uh... I don't know, but it is a weird thing to, a hard thing to remember is that in most of the states that we lose on the left, we, we lose by reasonably small margins. You know, you lose a state where you lose it over and over and over again, where Republicans get 50% of the vote, but that means 48% of the people are Democrats, right? You know, we're talking millions of people in a lot of states. And I think that's a shiftable sort of thing. I think, you know, maybe the other thing I think about uh, a lot about, which is maybe a place where my critique of the left, because sometimes we get really invested in like wanting candidates to have like exactly the right ideas and exactly the right policy goals. So we get in kind of an ideological purity that is hard to win elections with because, you know, like the you have to appeal to a lot of people. And I think the right does a great job for better or worse, or for worse, with... Um, uh, that politics is an instrument of like an expression of will, it's an instrument of will that like, you can elect someone you don't agree with who will do the things you want um, the evangelical right getting, you know, all those judges out of Trump is a great example of that like no one is like you can't be confused that Trump is like a particularly godly fellow, right? But um, but he certainly got them the goals they wanted in that way. Uh, and I think sometimes on the left, we struggle with that. Uh, but I actually think Biden's a good example of somebody who like has actually done a lot of like, you know, from my point of view, like climate and things like that, like really progressive things, because by having to run against Bernie Sanders and against Elizabeth Warren and some of these other people, he got really pushed to the left in a, in a really good way. Um, and, and that's where you get into that like, maybe we didn't elect the exact person we would have picked or any of us three would have picked you know if we started from scratch but a lot of the policies i wanted happened and i i think sometimes the left is not good at that at like the activist level where we um don't see that you can you can have all the right ideas and lose because you you know like the that's how it goes and having the right ideas doesn't mean anything if you can't implement them um, and implementing 70% of it is a lot better than zero. Uh, you know, yes, <laughs> yeah, that yeah, yeah. true. Like, yeah. It's hugely I mean, better. I, you
0: know, yeah. the reason I'm making that point about the about going looking back to McGovern is that I think that that, that wait, Trump's... I have
1: to give you shit about this. It's not McGovern, it's Mondale.
0: Mm. Yes. Wait a second. <laughs> I just looked this up. Mondale lost. Oh, but yeah. McGovern, McGovern lost the 72 election, didn't he?
1: Well, oh, yeah, but if you're talking yeah. about politicians, yeah. Yeah. You're, you're conflating them into one. You're conflating them yeah. into one
0: person. Oh, Ma- McGovern was from South Dakota. All right, one I big, messed that up. one Sorry. big Mondale person, one big person is just <laughs> losing things.
1: <laughs> but I just think RP, look, Trump's
0: fascism is really just fascism, right? We yep. all understand that. Yep. We've talked about it a lot. It's not as popular with the, you know, like it is not a majority of the Republican Party. There are a lot of people who would like right. to get out of this fascist Absolutely. loop, and I think that a, a candidate that could appeal to those people could win and could win overwhelmingly. Um, anyway, literature is filled with narratives that adjust and alter time as a way of expressing the sensation of trauma that we've been talking about all this time or the way our brains process horrible events or guilt or all the above. I'm thinking of Martin Amos's Times Arrow, for instance, or Joseph Heller's Catch-22, Toni Morrison's Beloved, Juan Rufo's Pedro Paramo. Often these like circling narratives um, are constructed to hide some terrifying fact or memory that is too difficult to confront directly, like in Catch Twenty Two, you know, the death of Snowden is like the thing that is that that the character is reacting to at the you know, is reacting to at the beginning of the book, but you don't read it until the very end, right? This this terrible death scene. So if real life if narratives imitate real life in certain ways, what terrifying hidden fact is there that we haven't discovered yet at the end of this story?
2: Yeah. Um well, you know, you, on one hand, you think, like, if you could name it, we could just fix it. But I actually think, oh, here's one, at least, that I, I'm thinking about. Um, I I think a lot about, uh, about like, utopia, right? And, like, what it would mean to, to live in a utopia. And and I think about Ursula Gwynn's, like, The Ones Who Walk Away From Omelas. And, you know, like, in that utopia, there's there's one child who's in this, like, cell and suffers. And there, somehow, everyone else is utopia is based on the suffering of this one child and so the people who walk away from Omalas, are people who will not accept that deal if one person is suffering then it's not a utopia um i think in in our society in all societies uh people who are doing well know intellectually maybe that some of their doing well is based on like the suffering of other people um and either you know in the u.s or elsewhere uh that i think that's just to me kind of obviously true that some of the good things we have in our life are based on other people, you know, not having them somewhere else. And we accept that bargain or or we don't think about that bargain. But I think the proportion inside the U.S. of people who feel like it's working out for them is changing. And, the you know, that's part of the one percent versus the ninety nine, you know, sort of rhetoric that we had for a while. And um, when the deal is worse for more people, that cre- that's something that is hard to acknowledge, and and people can benefit politically by scapegoating certain people. It's immigrants. It's it's people of color. It's you know whoever that's keeping you from having the good life you want. When it's really maybe systemic things. It's capitalism. It's you know etc. Um, I think if we can the as that the deal is bad for more people than it is good for seems obviously true to me. And I think that's a thing that's hard to acknowledge. And it's actually kind of a hard thing to run on as a politician, right? You'd be like, America's only good for like 1% of Americans is like not going to be like a rousing patriotic thing, even if that's the truth. Um, but I, I, I think the Republicans play on the anger half of that, um, as opposed to playing on like the building half of it, like we should build a society where the deal is better for more people. Um, and I think that's an argument we could and should make. So what you're saying is that the
0: the literary reference we should be looking at is the is the Sesame Street book that is that is called that has Grover and it says yeah, there's a monster, the monster at, at the end, end of, the of the book. <laughs>
2: And the monstrous you. Yes. Sure. I think there's some truth to that too. Um, I mean, you know, we've had so many conversations, you know, as a culture about like things like um, like white privilege or male privilege or things like that in the last, you know, uh, I mean for a while, but, you know, in a really top level way recently. And it's hard to acknowledge those things. It's hard to acknowledge that the good parts of your life are based on maybe other people you know, being in different conditions. Um, But the idea is, of course, not to get everybody out of those things, right? Design a society that's better for more people. Um, But that fear that uplifting other people will somehow bring you down is really present, I think, in a lot of Americans and and not just on the right. You know, I mean, I think that's a really strong narrative that we should try to self-correct whenever we can. But I think you have to name it. I think it's a thing that's easy to, to ignore.
1: And I think it's connected to, I mean, what you were saying before about, um, I don't know, like the politician with all of the right ideas versus like the one who says, I will fix it all for you, right? Like that's so easy and pleasant because you don't have to, there's not very much personal discomfort associated with like someone else just making the problem go away. Um, And like, I mean, the narrative challenge of like the society you're describing is that it's not clear that it's a solvable problem, which is like a, like a, I think that's like a, I don't want to say it's an inarticulable dread because I think I just, articulated yeah, yeah. <laughs> but like, I'm, I'm horrified and I don't want to say it again. Um, right. Like the, the, like the, we're all trying to tell ourselves a version of the story in which like, we're not fucked. And I'd like, we'd really like to know that that version exists. Um, and I think like, you know, one of the things I appreciate about your work is the way that, I don't know, like a kind of pragmatism in coexisting with a believable, yeah. hope. <laughs> of um, like oh hope I can like buy into. And so your most recent novel, Appleseed, uses three timelines with three echoing storylines that sort of connect in, in some ways, to I think to some of the ideas that we're talking about, the way that you handle this this material connects to some of those um, concepts. Like, So the first timeline involves a fawn named Chapman. It's a version of John Chapman or Johnny Appleseed. And the second involves a character named John and his friend who have co-founded an organization called Earth Trust and it's supposed to be addressing climate change, but has gone astray. Um, just contributing to the problem. And then the third features a being called C uh, 432 or in for, for most of that section, which exists in a distant, bleak future. And and each of these protagonists is kind of like a version of the other ones. And the stories connect in ways that touch on like some of what you were talking about before the repeating scenes and the different um the different sort of um progressions that can be seen, the different small changes. And I wonder if you can talk a little bit about how you decided to handle time and its echoes
2: in that. Yeah, book. thank you so much. I, I, uh, you know, I think I think a lot about uh, Charles Baxter's idea in his essay, like "Rhyming Action." This idea of like where actions repeat and rhyme, and I mean, even that's that sort of like history doesn't repeat; it rhymes kind of idea that is some of what we're talking about today more broadly. Um, and so, it, I, I was sort of thinking about like how things move through time, how they repeat, you know, narratively, just as like a, a source of pleasure in fiction. Um, but I was also thinking about uh, Timothy Morton, uh, the ecological philosopher. Uh, they have an idea uh, they call the the hyperobject, which is like a, a thing that is too massive or too dispersed in time and space to like ever really know completely, you know, that you can sort of know it by its signs, you know it how, it, how it expresses in a moment, but that moment is not like the thing. Um, and so something like Uh, like Morton's examples are things like uh, like nuclear waste, right? Like nuclear waste is going to degrade over this enormous amount of time that you can so you can see it in a moment, but you really can't see how radiation, you know, from a nuclear disaster actually interacts. Um, Climate change seems to be obviously one of those to me, right, where like uh, we have weird weather in the Pacific Northwest this week, but that's that's not climate change. It's a sign of climate change. Right. So it's hard to think about these things. Um, and so there were ideas I wanted to draw through a long period of time, like climate change, manifest destiny, capitalism. You know, some of these these different ideas that um, we, we, of course, interact with capitalism like every minute of every day, but you never really see capitalism, you know, it's not like a thing you can do that way. And and the climate is the same. And so I was thinking a lot about, you know, it's to me, some of these really founding foundational American ideas, you know, like the uh, manifest destiny seems so present. And I think it, it feels very present to me now. Like I think we, we see in our political rhetoric, we see in the way we feel about like space and and land and public spaces. Um, I, I talk a lot of when I talk about Appleseed about my dad coming to visit and, you know, who's the person who taught me to be an outdoors person and, and loves nature and we go hiking in the valley around Phoenix, which already has more people than should live in in, in the area, right? Um, and he'll look out at the valley and he'll go, one day all of this will be filled with houses. And I'm like, no, like the opposite, right? <laughs> I just feel like he has a little more manifest destiny in his heart than I do, right? Like he's like, like the goal of this should be to fill this with people. And I'm like, well, that's that's sort of wild. um, and And I think I was trying to like, Could I pull those ideas through a long period of time? And there's a a backstory part of the book about like the first sort of fawn that is really trying to also attach it to like Greek myth. Can I tell this like from the beginning of Western civilization, these ideas are still with us. The, The Bible ideas of like stewardship and dominion are not really that different than Manifest Destiny, right? You know, like we have these long stories. Um, and some of what I was hoping to do was really just to like bring them into the present, show how they would project into the future and and to name them and make them visible. Right. Like as much as possible, because um, it does seem like the first step to interacting with these stories is to be really clear, like what they are and that they exist and, and to notice them when you're you're hearing them in political speech or in, in your and even just like the stories you're telling yourself about your life, because um, there are there are a lot of narratives that until you have a name for them or have a framework for them. They just kind of go in one ear and out the other. I'm certainly have my own places where I'm susceptible to that and including some of those, um, and, uh, ideas about how success works or, you know, there's always a story we're telling ourselves about our, our lives. And I think noticing it is part of the, the process of changing it.
0: I love, I mean, I, you know, you're working with the elements of American myth, right? These are our versions of the Greek myths, you know, really Johnny Appleseed, Paul Bunyan, John Henry. These are all stories that, you know, I mean, so to retake one of those, because of course they have all of the things that you're, uh, the Johnny Absolute story has all the things that you're talking about embedded in. It's why you chose it. It's why, that's why the book works. Um, one of the things I admire about that book is that it, it has a vision of the future that acknowledges bad things have happened, uh, but also moves past it as a, to offer some sort of possibility, which is what you get by expanding the time frame, right? As you're talking about. Um, so I wondered um what you read that help, what you read to help you get to that particular version of optimism, um, do you have favorites books or stories that handle visions of the political future from which we can learn?
2: Yeah, I think um, you know uh, I, I mentioned Ursula Guin's work already. I think Le Guin is somebody who was really helpful to me. I I occasionally do this thing where I try to read like all of a. a like big living writer's work in like a year. Um, And I started reading Le Guin's The Year She Passed Away. So she passed away while I was doing it. But I read like 25 of her books one year when I was in the middle of writing Appleseed. And I feel like um, they were really important to me and they they also really clarifying. And one of the things I really loved about her work is, is like her own sort of moral clarity. Like, I just feel like she has a really good, she, her eyes in the ball all the time, um, without it being like, like didactic in a certain way, most of the time. Um, I think Wendell Berry was someone who was really important when I was writing that book to me. I, reading a book like The Unsettling of America, which I think is from the, the seventies, maybe it's the early eighties and felt, like this incredibly clear-eyed. Like this is how these some of these same American ideas work, and and how culture and technology interface with each other. And the, the you know there's a a line in that book that's it's paraphrased by John in the near future part of the book, but he doesn't remember it quite right. But it's something like. Um, uh, a man with a machine and insufficient culture is a pestilence, you know, like this idea that our technology outraces our culture and our, our sort of philosophies around it, which seems absolutely true to me. I mean, watching like the AI stuff happen right now is like a really obvious version of like, yeah, 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 yeah. That. Like the culture is not ready for the technology that has been unleashed on it, um, which is true of most of the technologies that were developed in my lifetime, I think. Um, So they were really important to me, you know, kind of looking books that came out after Appleseed that I I hope other people will read. uh, Allegra Hyde wrote a a novel called Eleutheria that came out last year. That is a a really great kind of present grounded climate fiction novel. Um, You know, Allegra's work is always sort of utopian in in function. Um, There's a part late in that book that is like the list of everything we could do about the climate from like a personal to like a local to a regional to a global, she just kind of like lays it out over like two or three pages. and it's like and it's partly because what we can and should do about the climate crisis is pretty known scientifically. It's just like do we have the political will to do it? you know do we have the economic will to do it? And I think Allegra lays that out really well. Uh, There's a book coming out this year that I I wrote a blurb for, uh, I'm not sure it's coming out, but I think later this year by a guy, Nick Fuller Goggins, and it's called The Great Transition. And it takes place after like the fossil fuel transition has happened, you know, but the the kind of flashbacks in the book show this really clear, like on the ground, real people doing the work of like how we move past the sort of fossil fuel economy. And it's got this, you know, great kind of thriller plot in the present. But it it really is one of those books that's like if you can't imagine what it will be like to live through that transition, which I think is part of our inability to do it. Um, he really shows the steps and shows how that will have to happen, and the you know both like the pleasure and the sacrifice of it. And I think you know uh, those are both books I'd really recommend to people who wanted to think in a sort of grounded, realist way about how we can move forward. Um, so you know, deeply utopian books, deeply political books. Uh, neither of them are Pollyannish in any way, right? They're 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 hopeful because they're thinking about these things. Um, and I say maybe that's generally I find people taking seriously the problems of of the world and looking for solutions to be a hopeful act. You know, that feels for me. Uh, My second novel, Scrapper, is like a really angry book. It was a really angry novel to write. I think it's an angry novel to read. Like, I'm not sure it's like a pleasurable book. Um, And uh, and when I got done with, or I was finishing that book, you know, you always see the lack in the novel you're writing, which kind of creates the need for the next book in some ways. And I thought, I'm never going to write... A book again that's like just the problem reiterated at like high volume right like like if I'm gonna think about these things that are problems in the world I'm also gonna think toward solutions or think toward modes of thought that might lead to solutions Um, I never want a book that's just about how angry I am again Um, and so I think that's part of what I'm looking for in other people as well
1: so there's a part in refuse to be done where you talk about the stories that characters tell themselves and it feels like a lot of what you're encouraging us to do in which I really appreciate isn't encouraging us to think about the ways that we can tell ourselves maybe a better story about what is going to come next year oh my god <laughs> but see my my blood pressure is basically leveling off here so um matt thank you so much for joining us we really appreciate it listeners don't miss refuse to be done and matt's latest novel Appleseed. matt thank you so much
2: thank you both for having me i love this podcast really fun to get to be honest thank you That's it for the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast. This
0: podcast is produced by Ann Knigendorf. Our theme music is composed by Travis Workman. You can subscribe to us by typing fiction slash non slash fiction into the search bar of your favorite podcast app. Please go give us a rating and review on Apple Podcasts if you haven't done it yet. You can also listen, find previous episodes, and read excerpts from our interviews at the Literary Hub website, lithub.com, where the Fiction Nonfiction Podcast page is listed under the Lit Hub Radio tab. We'll also post that show page with links to the books we referenced this week on Facebook at FNFpod, on Twitter at FNF Talk, on Instagram at fiction.non.fiction.podcast. You can find video of our interviews at our own Fiction Nonfiction Podcast YouTube channel and IGTV channel, and on our website at fnfpodcast.net, where our back episodes are grouped by topic areas. Happy reading!